sorry. This is an oral history interview <coughs> with former Republican leader Bob Michael for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We are in your Washington law offices of Hogan and Hartson, and today is Thursday, May 24, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Mr. Michael, um, it strikes me that you and Bob Dole shared a lot in terms of where you came from and <laughs> what you did, and can you just Oh, well, goodness, of course, Bob was from Russell, Kansas. We all know that, you know, and I was from Peoria, or am from Peoria. I still regard it as my hometown. I know Bob always has a warm affection for Russell, Kansas. Gosh, all through the years, he would make reference to it, and I think we all feel, at least uh, he did and I did, felt real strongly about the people who initially sent us uh, into the big arena of politics and uh we're always appreciative of what uh, that start we got, and I don't think, uh, I, I, I share Bob's view that, boy, we never want to forget those roots uh, back there in Kansas or Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> um, now, both of you are, quote, unquote, children of the Depression, too. Uh, oh, by all means. And how has that affected uh, you and him? Well, I tell you, that uh, was a, had a big effect. I was just doing a thing for my own alma mater back in Peoria, Bradley University, and they have an institute of principal politics. And uh, when I was giving a lecture uh, to the students and the hall was jammed, I was, I was very happy that they were so attentive to what I was saying about my early life. And I said I was a product of, of the Depression, and I think... There's no question that that has had a bearing on my entire life because I remember uh, while I was fortunate that my my father was a was a um, a, um, a machinist of, of uh, and a toolmaker with a job that was really required and and was working most of the time during the depression, but there was 25 percent unemployment you know around the country. And I, uh, my mother was from a family of 12, eight boys from out in Utah. And while they were agriculturally uh, dominated at that time, they, uh, two, uh, several of her brothers were very good mechanics and, and rode the rails, you know, uh, hooking their way back here to the east. If, couldn't they find jobs, you know? And uh, I always, uh, well, I was a, I didn't, I had, not only one paper route, but I had three, a couple uh, at the same time, oh, mowed grass and all the routine that you do, you know, of those days. But the thing that struck me one, it was a Friday night, I think it was, and my two uncles came um, home uh, to the house, and, oh, and then they came and stayed with, my, with us, <clears throat> and, um, and work, they were working on piecework. And actually, when they were kind of disconsolate and downhearted, you know, because mom or dad would say, well, how do you do this week? And, and they say, and they announced what the, that uh, check was uh, for, the, for the week, you know. And uh, I realized that I was making more carrying my three paper routes than they were as, as first-class mechanics working at Jarvis Chevrolet in Peoria, Illinois. It wasn't that their work was not comp. There just wasn't that kind of business. People couldn't even get their cars repaired, you know. And and then to witness that personally of people who really 
had problems getting by. That that's always stuck with me, and uh, and uh, you never forget it. Uh, frankly, when I look back at history, and you know, say 25 percent unemployment, uh, I say in today's time you'd just about have a revolution. You know, when I remember my toughest race when I was running for the first time uh, re-election after being leader. Why uh, there was 16 percent unemployment in Peoria, and man, I was—that was tough. <laughs> the general pu public is about 10 percent, but I had a significant problem, and those things really—they um, really stick with you. <clears throat> You're talking about them as memories when you were growing up and a young man. What bearing did they have on your career as a public servant? Well, I guess in one respect, it made me all the more conservative from the standpoint of, uh, uh, for example, my father, another one of the, of the uh, things that I learned from my father, he, I could spend my, my earnings for whatever on my clothes and whatever I wanted to, except that he wanted to be sure that I was putting 10% away. Always banking, he had a, I had a bank account, and he'd check that every once in a while to see that whatever I was making, more yards or working at a tailor shop or uh, papers or one thing or that, I was laying 10% away. That was another principle that always stuck with me, that always get yourself prepared for a rainy day. <laughs> and I'm sure, Bob, uh, that's kind of the, the uh, background he had in his family. We shared a common... Uh, those of us who were born at that time then eventually became public figures. Why, boy, that uh, that shaped our our lives and our and our thinking about issues. No question about it. <clears throat> That's fiscal policy. What about other areas? Well, I I was the son of a French immigrant. Uh, my uh, father uh, was French, and my mother uh, did not finish high school. She was a house domestic, and. Um, um, they were conservative. And um, I don't know, of course, in this country at that time, we were evolving as a, with a, as a melding of blacks and whites uh, from our symbol of war and, and, uh, and black constituency. And uh, that was not the easy... I, I, I learned later on that I had to do more in the area of melding the differences between the... I didn't get it from my parents because they were they still... They were... That's the way people were. You, you just can't get away from it. So then... Um, but they were always very, uh, very religious people. Oh, I had to go to Sunday school every Sunday, you know, and... Even uh, on the on the on the tithing, you know, my father would uh, would give me a dime or a quarter or something. Be sure that I was getting used to contributing to the church and and to fill other philanthropic causes too. <clears throat> now I seem to recall that uh, Bob Dole, uh, when asked what party he was going to be. Uh, affiliated with, right. sort of said, well, who has the most votes in Kansas? Right. And he found out it was pretty Republican, and right. therefore he became a Republican. Uh, I suspect you were sort of a Republican from birth. Oh, in my case, yes. Oh, I remember, of course, even though in the Depression, 
you know, and the, what Roosevelt did to bring us out of it, and who, who I would still refer to as one of our uh, greater presidents of all of them combined. My mother and father detested him. Oh, they just couldn't stand Roosevelt, you know. Uh, well, they were hard-shell Republicans. Just I don't, <laughs> I never really asked them how'd you how'd you become Republicans. It just it it happened, and and that was the environment in which I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> and you became active politically in high school, as I recall. Well, yeah, the, uh, I'm never thinking, you know, you're going to do anything down the road a ways. It's just that, oh, um, I was fortunate in high school, for example, to have a homeroom teacher who was a stickler on parliamentary procedure. I not not a, all of them got the kind of training I did in, in Miss McGrath's homeroom, and she had a every. I don't even know if some of them ever chose up officers, but she said, we're going to have uh, officers, you're going to run the program, uh, and uh, what little it might be, you know, president and vice president and secretary, and, and of course, uh, are there any am amendments to the uh, minutes as read, you know, and uh, without objection. It was, uh, it was good training back in the high school. I never thought I was going to use it later on, uh, other than maybe in, in uh, just running a normal meeting, having... Uh, some gift of leadership to move things along, and and uh, that helped. <laughs> As you uh, <clears throat> came of age on the brink of World War II, did you have a sense of where you would be career-wise later on no, in your I life? No, I had no, no, none whatsoever. I um, I liked uh, music, and I um, and I was a good at singing. And uh, gosh, from Sunday school on, grade school and high school, and always in, in whether it's double quartet, madrigals, a cappella choir, I love. Of course, I eventually married uh, my wife in the music school in Bradley. She's a, a very accomplished pianist and a, her degree in music education and piano. So uh, that was one of the things that always uh, stuck with me. But I never. Uh, and then in public speech, I took public speaking class, but again, never thinking that uh, when I look back on it and I say my voice training plus the opportunity to have gone to uh, speech class uh, obviously helped me when I be <laughs> became a full-fledged politician. But it, that, uh, I never thought of it in those terms. I really didn't. I, I, as a matter of fact, I first started out, uh, uh, my major was uh, engineering because my I was real good on a drafting board. And my father, you know, uh, coached me along, had all these fine instruments that he uh, brought e even over from the old country in his work. That was, uh, And I thought that was for me, and I was good at it. I only had a, a semester, however, before the war came along and interrupted it all. And I always said, well, one of the good things for me personally that happened about the war that I obviously determined, well, sitting around a draft board was not for me. I'd have to have, you know, there'd have to be something different than that for a career. As a matter of fact, uh, then I... To, uh, switch my major to uh, economics and business administration. And, and the way I actually got involved in politics, uh, for real, was when the president of the university called me in one day, just a couple months before graduation, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> wanted to know what I was going to do. 
because I had been active managing a couple campaigns in the, on, on the campus at Bradley University. Well, I guess I was elected junior class president too. And uh, uh, he asked me to, um, he said, I have a good friend who's uh, running for Congress to succeed Everett Dirksen, who's retiring from the, uh, from the Congress. And Everett Dirksen had represented my 18th district for 16 years in the House and already was a very uh, prominent individual, of course, and that's eventually what led to him being chosen as a, the nominee to run in the Senate against the then-majority leader, uh, Scott Lucas. And, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, I said, well, geez, uh, Mr. Owen, I, I haven't had political science, I haven't had journalism, and he said, you just go have the interview. He, um, Judge Veldy needs a man Friday uh, for his campaign and asked me if I could make a recommendation. I've observed you on campus and I think you should go down and have the interview. So I went down and had the interview and lo and behold, we hit it off uh, very well. Of course, the key was, you know, the judge said, well, of course, you know, uh, Bob, or you don't know, but in politics, uh, we don't, they're not very much pay involved. And, um, uh, but if, uh, of course, I'm successful, I'd like to think of taking you along to Washington and me and in my shop. And uh, so uh, yeah, we'll uh, pay you 30 bucks a week. Uh, and so coming out of uh, graduating then in June and and uh, going to work for the campaign then in back, in that, back in 1948. Why, that's the way it all began, you know. And I, geez, I remember uh, learning to how to write a press release from a couple of the good reporters in the district who were friends of the judge who, who wanted him to win and then and taught me the, a key line here, one thing or another. And <laughs> so uh, it was really by accident that I got you know, really immersed, and of course, then by coming down here, and and then of all things, I was very fortunate. Uh, Everett Dirksen had, incidentally, in those days, had only I think five people in his the congressional office, but but he was still a, a dominant figure. You know, wasn't loaded up like we have today with over twenty some people. You know, and hardly desk room for all the staff. And uh, one of the keys were. Uh, a uh, husband and wife affair, both of whom could take shorthand and type. And, and uh, uh, I was fortunate that they, of course, while Everett Dirksen then during that two years was campaigning for the Senate, they w were happy to stay on the Hill and work for Judge Veldy, who was my predecessor, and, and coached me. And I, it's a little bit awkward situation where this little neophyte from Peoria, Bobby Michael, comes out here to Washington to tell these f folks who've been there working on the Hill for 15 years uh, how to run the office. They were very wonderful people. My wife and I then got to know them so well, played bridge together and everything. So it was a nice camaraderie arrangement. But uh, uh, that's how, uh, uh, then of course I spent uh, eight years as the AA, and then the, the judge decided to voluntarily to retire, and uh, and uh, and he said, "Bob, uh, it's not for me, and uh, no reason why you shouldn't uh, make the race." He says, "You've learned enough around here to be able to to do what's required to be a congressman," <laughs> and so that was good.
unfortunately, you know, so many people, and, and I would encourage young people in college today, you know, well, don't be afraid to get, uh, get started down at the bottom and we'll run for the school board or, uh, or uh, the county board or uh, uh, even just some little co some council of some sort to give yourself an opportunity to prove your leadership qualities and uh, eventually uh, uh, you'll, you'll be rewarded. <laughs> Did you have subsequent contacts with the president of Bradley uh, as your career progressed? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he, uh, uh, no, because it wasn't, oh, well, I, I take that back. Yes, we were down here at several years, and he was still the president of the university, and uh, from time to time he'd come down, and uh, oh, I, and then I think he left the university and went to, the, to uh, California and represented, oh, like the Chamber of Commerce out there, a couple of them, and when they came back, of course, we renewed the old friendship. He was a great uh, one for uh, boosting Bradley basketball. We, were act we actually became a, a national power uh, because uh, the president uh, was so engrossed in, in the, our basketball team, and we had a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't seven footers either, you know. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, so, so do you think that kind of a, a career start is possible today? Oh, n hardly. I, th that was unique for me. I, I have to tell the folks, you know, that was, I really got. I was very lucky. I was at the right place at the right time. And uh, although I'll tell folks, you know, opportunity knocks sometimes, but once. You better, no, I could have very well said, oh, I don't want to go down for that interview. That's just so far afield for me. But uh, I was pliable and uh, amenable, and, uh, and I found out that uh, that was probably one of the bigger lessons in life I learned. <laughs> I think you started out talking about this. I thought you were going to go this, to, to this to talk a bit about the GI Bill, is that right? Oh, well, of course, that was uh, very uh, helpful to me. Uh, gosh, at that time, uh, uh, well, I got it really through my wife, I guess, more than anything, when I get, went to Bradley, and then I, that was the best thing that happened to me, meeting her and in the music school, and, and she was uh, three years younger than I was, but she was already a junior, and I was going back to becoming an ending freshman at three and a half years uh, gone in the military, you know. And so um, um, that, uh, that all, well, it all played a role for me. <clears throat> um, we'll have another occasion to talk about your World War II mm -hmm. uh, experiences in detail, but um, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about uh, the importance of World War II as a life experience that you and Bob Dole both shared very yes. many common points. Oh, by all means. Uh, we talked about the Depression as being a big one, having served in the military, and particularly in World War II, and in my case, uh, in, uh, in the infantry, and uh, having seen my share of the worst of it, uh, and um, uh, that, you never, you never forget that, and I'm reminded, particularly when I, when I, um, uh, when uh, I co-authored the uh, the resolution to give George the uh, first the authority to use ground troops in the Gulf War, and uh, 
Speaker Tom Foley often likes to refer to the how I it was a very emotional debate, but it was bipartisan, and how I came up to him and I told him I said, "Well, Tom, you and I are on different sides of this issue," and and I'm. I just told our members, you know, you vote your conscience on this one. This is not a political uh, issue, Republican or Democrat. It's a vote of conscience. And uh, I'm going to have to oppose you, Tom, because I think we have to do what we do. But I'll tell you, for me, it's very emotional. Then, as I described during the course of my remarks on the floor, um, a generation ago, there are 25, 30, well, whatever it was, years ago, uh, I was a, uh, in the enlisted ranks during all my tenure in the Congress. I was always given to following orders and uh, had nothing to say about my, my uh, future or fortune, whatever. Uh, and here I am a generation later now as a member of the, uh, the uh, highest legislative body in the land, and now I'm making a a life and death decision for another generation, and I know I got real emotional at the time, and um, and I feel it strongly. Um, uh, you you can't address the issue without recalling those vivid memories of what you young people who might again be thrust in harm's way will have to face, what I faced, and frankly. I was of that generation when we thought, just like a generation before World War I, a war to end all wars, and ours was going to be, well, uh, the demise of Hitler and all those things that were involved there. And, uh, of course, then ultimately when you, uh, particularly as, as we're recording this near Memorial Day and thinking in terms of goodness sakes, here's uh, Korea and here's Vietnam and here's the Gulf War and now the... Uh, Iraqi war, it's, uh, those are, uh, I'm sure, and, and I know Bob shared the same thing with me. Those are the, that's the real tough, tough decision to make. I read uh, <clears throat> the interview, I guess, with the Capitol Historical Society that you and uh, Mr. Foley shared, and, and this came up in that interview, and mm -hmm. it was very moving to hear you talk about the, the vote in 91, but then you'd also lived through the whole Vietnam uh, yes. You were voting then, and right was your feeling I, and is strong I never, then? And I never made a trip to Vietnam. I don't know. I just, I, I, I really, uh, I always remembered somewhere about. I, I thought it was uh, MacArthur himself. He says, "Don't get involved in a land war in Asia," and uh, and uh, of course, you know, Kennedy had the the. Uh, the uh, Vanguard of trainees, and uh, and of course the French. That was just a debacle for the French, and here we were following suit. And uh, but I didn't. I guess at the time, felt that I was experienced enough, or knowledgeable enough to know, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And uh, of course, ultimately you. You come to some conclusions, particularly then when you think in terms of the overall conflict between, the, at that time, the Soviet Union and the United States, and the Korean, and Harry Truman saying, "Well, it's just a police action," 
uh, it turned out to be much more than a police action, but then as it ended up, here we were on the 38th parallel, and that, that was them, and here we are with South Korea. And then when we got to Vietnam, then it was a different parallel, but it was, and then in Europe, where it was at that time still the Soviet Union trying to get the minds of, of the people in East Germany and West Germany. So when you witnessed and experienced that in your real life, it really makes an impression of what this was all about globally, you know, far from what I would have been thinking about back in Peoria in high school or college, although I had a wonderful uh, history teacher. Uh, he was Armenian, and oh, he, he really made history come to life. And... Uh, I guess one of my recommendations to the college kids uh, just a few weeks ago, you know, is they said, well, what would you concentrate on? I said, well, boy, you, you don't do yourself any harm by taking as much history as you can in, in any walk of life because when you think in terms of what we're involved today and then you have to ask yourself the question, listen, these people making the decisions, do they really know historically what what some of the what some of the factors are going to be, you know, I don't think we uh, we were nearly aware of what was involved in the Islamic community, you know, uh, and uh, so life is a learning experience. <laughs> um, and and I've heard many people say when I interview veterans for the Library of Congress that they wish there were more people in Congress today who have had combat experience because their attitude might. Well, be you know, and that's true. Of course, when when I was uh, a junior congressman, you know, boy, we were, I'm, uh, you know, most of us were had served some time in the, in the in the military. And of course, now today there there are very few. I'm thinking of. How our um, um, Chowder and Marching Society began because back in Nixon's day and Ford's day and and uh, oh a number of former members of Congress from from around the country, including John Lodge from Connecticut, and who names are familiar, you know. And there was a pension bill that came up to pay us all all World War II veterans a pension, and these twelve fellows got together, all members of the House of Representatives all Republicans, and said, you know, this is kind of crazy. Robin Peter to pay Paul. What do we need a pension for? Uh, that was our obligation and responsibility when, when our government called us into service. And, and by getting together and deciding they were going to fight this thing, they beat that pension bill by one vote, which then led to that organization becoming what it was, geez, with the uh, uh, former, with uh, ex-then presidents and um, and vice presidents and secretaries uh, and, you know, are members of it because they, uh, uh, they thought strongly about, uh, about that issue, but then other issues following on. It was, uh, it was another, again, learning experience, you know. <laughs> did, did you and, and Senator Dole ever sit down and reminisce about or share thoughts? You know, we really, oh, I don't know. I th it, it was always kind of by happenstance, I think, that we both knew what it was like. We, neither of us, I don't think, ever wanted to press that 
impress that experience upon our contemporaries other than to say, well, yeah, well, we know what you're talking about in spades. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, not really other than, um, oh, I guess the time I'm remembering, I guess it was at the time the Gulf War when, um, when Bob and I and uh, Brent Scrocroft, uh, Colin Powell, uh, were there at uh, Bush the first uh, called us down to the White House for a luncheon, and it was the day that we had the bombing of uh, uh, in uh, the Gulf War that was just devastating, and and uh, the um, uh, Saddam's troops were on the were on, were retreating, you know, and and I remember distinctly President uh, Bush uh, the first at that time having been a former pilot, you know, he said. Our pilots are coming back telling us that this is like just shooting fish in a barrel. And because the question came up, well, you know, now what? And he reiterated to all of us, uh, saying that, um, uh, look, the Unite, our United Nations mandate was to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. He was an, the aggressor, and our role is to kick him out of there. Now, it's obvious, quite obvious we've accomplished that. And uh, so, of course, in retrospect, 2020 hindsight, people say, well, why didn't you go the whole way at that time and save yourself what you're doing today? But uh, I remember distinctly that was not the mandate of the UN. And, uh, and, uh, and frankly, I always, you wonder then, how would have we have handled that any different than we did <laughs> to do? Would we have been better off? I don't know. That's a question for history. Mm -mm. And a big one. Sure is. Yeah. Um, let's go back to um, that first race uh, of yours when you succeeded uh, the congressman that you've been working yes. for. Were you a household name in the district by then? or Not really, although the name Michael was, uh, that's what, incidentally, when I went into the service, I wanted to prove to my dad that he should have stuck to his French pronunciation, Michel. Mother, mother, mother always thought that's a much prettier pronunciation than Michael. And he said, "Listen, I came to America to be an American, so they want to call me Michael Mitchell or anything. Why, that's good enough for me." Uh, but anyway, when I went all through my three and a half years, everybody knew me as Bob Michelle, and I got a little uh, story to tell you on that. When one of my former old platoon sergeants called me up after li listening to me on the, in the debate on the House floor, always never realizing that I was in his platoon back in the war as Bob Michelle here, because everybody said the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Michael. And, and, and uh, Dan Flood from Pennsylvania and Silvio Conti of Massachusetts used to, you know, my subcommittee used to love to refer to me, the gentleman from Illinois, Monsieur Michelle. And so uh, he had finally dawned on me, he called me from Chillicothe, Ohio, and he says, my gosh, Bob, I didn't realize that was you uh, from our former old Fox company. Uh, in the, and I said, well, it is, Charlie. <laughs> but uh, just the pronunciation of a name. So when I ran the first time, however, there was, a, we subsequently realized, maybe a shirt-tail relative because he, he uh, uh, Victor P. Michel, uh, Michael, at that time uh, was mayor of Peoria for a term and a state senator. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, and he was a popular individual. Was, uh, uh, and uh, I thought, well, 
better that we stick with the name Michael for in political arena rather than we confusing the people. Uh, and uh, so it worked out right <laughs> to do that. Um, and there was a five main race, and uh, and um, Jim Unland who. Uh, uh, eventually became our state central committeeman and uh, was one of my opponents. Is of course one of my closest friends today. Retired down in in uh, Arizona, but uh, um, it was he was the principal opponent. And I think I, there were about nineteen thousand votes for me and sixteen thousand for him, and then the others drifted away. So, uh, <clears throat> and in that district, particularly in. After so many years, Dirksen had served. Uh, it probably wouldn't have been very likely a Democrat would have won. Uh, it was a re Republican district. Six uh, basic six counties were still there, right? It's gotten uh, well. Of course, now it's enlarged so too, and and through redistricting, which is another problem we face today. You know, these curly Q districts, twenty-two counties instead of six, and running kittywampas all over the state. <laughs> So when did you first uh, meet Bob Dole? Well, I guess it uh, wasn't until he was elected to the House. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, I, I'm trying to think back, you know, how did we finally get to know him as a, a kind of a comedian right off the bat? He was so good at telling stories. Of course, in the House, you got so much dead time, you go back and there in the cloakroom, you know, and having a hot dog or a Coke or whatever, you know, and whiling away your time sometimes. And uh, when Bob was there, he was always had some story to tell or some quip, and uh, it, it, uh, he was just fantastic at it. Everybody just got to know, my gosh, how does this guy <laughs> come up with these expressions and, and get everybody in a good, laughable mood? <laughs> it was amazing. And this was right from the start. Right, right. Like I said, it just didn't take long. You got to know him. Boy, he's a fun fellow. That's the way you got to to uh, recognize. Of course, then eventually you realize when the guy is, and of course, the two of us, from my standpoint of our experience in the war, there was a community of interest. This was no slouch, and and uh, Bob was a very significant individual and one heck of a good. Of course, then he got an agriculture committee and. Very uh, active and forceful and effective in and uh, food for peace programs, uh, anything that uh, would uh, would uh, promote the, the cause of agriculture. Why uh, he was right there in the forefront at all. Oh, of course, Kansas is Kansas and a big wheat state, and just like Pat Roberts has got to be, and Sebelius and those folks all got to be known as for. Uh, the area they represented. Well, they really know the subject. <laughs> um, and were articulate, articulate in, um, in expressing their views. That was another thing for, in Bob's case. You know, he, he had a gift, as you say, a gift for gab. It's a, a gift for public speaking. And Right. Um, you came to the House in 1957. Right. Elected in 56. And, right. And he came in 1961, I guess, elected right. in 1960. So, uh, and he became the, is it the president of the freshman class? Could very well be. I was of mine, and I didn't realize, but I guess he could be very understandable because he was, like I said, 
he's a very popular individual from the word go. <laughs> so, um, do you have any recollections of uh, working with him as a colleague in the House? Well, not so much, not in the House as much as in the Senate. Right. <laughs> After he got to the Senate, right. and uh, I remember specifically, you know, when I'd been elected leader uh, before he uh, became in the leadership role in the Senate. The thing that one of the things that always struck me, uh, which showed a, a, a trait of character for Bob, never get being carried away with his own position, you know, of importance. I remember specifically on the first leadership meeting we had together at the White House, and and normally when you come out after the president and the and you meet the press, you know, and and I don't know. For me, I guess I just always kind of yielded to the senator uh, senators to go first, and then I'd I'd mop up as the House members. But Bob specifically told me, "Hey, uh, Bob, I'm the new kid on the block," you know lead off. And and it's funny how little, just little things like that, but it was a trait of character of Bob's. He was never carried away with the fact that he was the leader, uh, either minority or majority leader. Um, that was one of those just an additional responsibility that you that was thrust upon you and, and do the best you jo job you can at, at it. He was good. <laughs> Going back to uh, Bob Dole in the House for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe just a more general question I have, and that is, as a member of the House, are you always sort of looking at your colleagues and thinking, now, this one is going to try to get up to the Senate or, or over to the Senate, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I don't know, not so much, other than uh, particularly if, uh, of course, we were Republicans, you know, you, and you had a... a, a uh, up-and-coming House member that had potential for going to the Senate, why, boy, you were always, uh, you know, the thought would say, well, Bob, when are you going to rack it up here and, and go for the enchilada, you know? <laughs> Although so many House members would, you know, be reluctant to refer to the upper House or to get an advancement to become the Senate. Although today, I think I checked the other day, I think they're just over half of the House me of the members of the Senate were former members of the House, whether it be Republican or Democrat, because it was a nat it was pretty much of a natural. Of course, some liked uh, state government and prefer to go to the. I remember several of our members who've done that, like um, oh Charlie Thone from Nebraska and uh, and uh, oh name escapes me from Minnesota, and after they become governor, and you know I I ask them, well, how is it being? Boy, it's a lot better in the House. We can we can really get things done. I mean, you're in an executive uh, position, role rather than simply a legislator. And I don't mean to demean the legislative process, because it has equal status and under our Constitution with the three branches of government. But nonetheless, there's a difference between having that executive authority and even when you're picking presidential candidates you know they'll look and say well he's only been a legislator he's never had to really run the whole show <laughs> and how good of an executive is he you know and that's true that legislators many times have a deficiency in in uh, in their leadership role in having the experience of a, an executive over a a group of uh, individuals 
So at some point, did you uh, <clears throat> did it occur to you that uh, seeing Bob Dole in the House, he'd be he's he's going to go to the Senate? Oh, I, I think I think there's no question about it. Right. I'm trying to think who were who the senators were at the time. Of course, I remember Carl Cliff Carlson was a great senator from, and then uh, oh, uh, oh, gee whiz, several others, but. Uh, uh, and then, of course, sometimes you, if the way didn't open up against a member of the opposition party, why well, you had situations where members decided, well, I'm going to take him on in the primary, and <laughs> and that's happened. Then they put it's a, kind of a sticky wicket if it's if you know them both and and uh, or, and don't have a preference one way or another. Although sometimes then you say, well. It's a good thing he's running because we'd lose a seat if he, with, who, with the incumbent who is not pulling his oars, you know, and uh, we need a change of face or one thing. To <clears throat> so as a legislator in the House, uh, you, what came to mind for you was uh, Bob Dole on the Agriculture Committee. Yeah, right. Very dominant. And... Um, to what extent was his interest in things like the food stamp and and uh, foreign aid and whatnot strictly uh, based on the interests of farmers? And to what extent was it, let's say, quote unquote, humanitarian interests? Oh, I think. Well, initially, I would say it was probably you know the, his constituency and the farming community that he obviously represented. Then as he uh, grew in stature and became a more a prominent member of the House, then, of course, he broadened the scope of his whole, whole thinking, for that matter. And, uh, of course, uh, he was always very strong on defense, too. And um, so uh, I think it's just kind of a natural that, uh, that, that he would uh, be very active in, and, of course, uh, to our advantage to have agricultural exports, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, when you get down the road a piece and you just be getting ethanol in those early days, you know, as, as a substitute fuel for all the petrol. And, uh, uh, but uh, I think that just grew with his, with his stature, you know, and, and his... Uh, broadening his vision of what his obligation responsibility, probably looking forward to, quite frankly, then to his moving on to the Senate and maybe being in the Foreign Affairs Committee and having to deal with those subjects. And much, in other words, that his obligation and responsibility was going to go far beyond the state of Kansas or the congressional district that he once represented. And, uh, of course, that's uh, to the people's advantage when one uh, takes it on and uh, and makes such a success of it like Bob has. To what extent uh, was his World War II experience uh, gave him sort of a privileged position or was... A res one, uh, just that much more respect for what he had with, uh, what he had undergone experience-wise and that when he spoke, he spoke with authority. He uh, you know, you're not going to kid Bob Dole about, you know, uh, what combat is all about and uh, life in the service. Uh, he's lived it, and uh, that means a heck of a lot. <clears throat> so uh, he moved on then to 
the Senate, yes, and uh, fairly quickly began to get leadership positions there with the Republican yes. National Committee and so on and so right. forth. Um, so, talk a little bit more about your relations with him on because he was a leader in the House, in the Senate, in the Senate. Yes. yes. Well, and then of course when I got up to the point where I uh, got to be uh, well whip first and or up chairman of the Congressional Campaign Committee for one devastating term. He, uh, I always look back on that and he said, how did I ever get promoted to whip when I lost, when I was responsible for, you know, or at least was chairman when we lost 47 seats in the House. Of course, the, the year was Watergate. And that was just absolutely devastating. I know my wife and I, we would hate to wake up in the morning, turn the news on, find out what other shoe had dropped the night before, you know. It was terrible. And trying to get candidates to run. But Bob was then coupled with that was his ability, you know, campaign-wise. And, and, of course, he was really on the speaking circuit because members loved to have him come speak to their district. He'd give them an entertaining speech in addition to being philosophically right. Uh, it was a, you know, they say, geez, that was a damn good speech. And, uh, and uh, so Bob then became, of course, chairman and uh, of the com- committee itself. And uh, which was another mark of uh, distinction and leadership on his part. So uh, it was just a, a broadening of all the things in which he got involved during the course of his tenure. Mentioning 1974 brings to mind his senatorial uh, election that year, which where he came very close to losing. Mm. Were you uh, were Republicans around the country aware of, of that particular race with uh, well, Dr. Roy? Well, I, I can't say honestly that you know at that time I I was probably in, in a position where where it was geez I had all I could do to take care of my house <laughs> house members you know let alone but you uh, I was aware obviously uh, as chairman of the congressional campaign committee. Uh, who's uh, yeah? Who is at the top of the ticket? Is the governor running, and is he popular or not? And then is the senator running? Is he popular or not? And is it the, that makes a big difference for the House members who are usually lower on the on the ballot? So uh, it had to be a consideration for those of us in the House and the congressional committee. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> talk a little bit about the relationship of the uh, Republican National Congressional Committee and the uh, Republican National Committee. Well, I think there's uh, today a far, far better coordination between uh, the three, senatorial, congressional, and uh, of course, again, it's uh, today uh, money is such a factor that uh, while it's always been some factor, uh, I think if I'd like to correct something today, it would be, oh, how could we get by without money being such a factor in this whole equation? It's just unconscionable. I ran the first time for Congress for $15,000, you know, in a congressional race. My toughest one when I was running the first time for re-election as a leader, and uh, they couldn't get it. Reagan. Reaganomics was rather unpopular. We had the recession of 1982. And um, uh, I had then I spent I think six hundred and sixty thousand, and that was the most you know. But today, when I'm thinking, first of all, we had no Bob Dornan out in California in a house race, a million dollar. He said, "My goodness, what's happening here?" And of course, now the multi-million dollar house race is not even 
suggesting the Senate or governors or whatever. It's uh, just, uh, uh, it's, I, I don't know that it's helped the process. I, <laughs> I, I, I wish there were some way we could get by without, without it being such a factor, but it is. It's a fact of life. Just as a, a matter of, of historical note here, when you were in charge of the NRCC, uh, what were the relations between the Senate and the Republican National Committee? How, how, how did things work? Well, I, uh, like I said, I don't, it wasn't near what it is today. Of course, we didn't, have the, we didn't have the communications. We didn't have the kind of facilities. Uh, um, it, was, it was haphazard back in, in those early days. You know, we were kind of we on our own. You know, it, it's, it's a much better coordinated operation today than it was back in Bob's and my early days. And the, uh, but that isn't to say that, you know, the, of course, the National Committee was always very important. Of course, their, their initial consideration was the president because many times the president himself would, uh, if he w was elected president or, or if he was the nominee, had something to say about who's going to be the chairman of the National Committee. And... Uh, <clears throat> Whereas in the, both the Senate and House, uh, we were pretty free to pick our own leaders, you know, minus uh, presidential influence one way or another. So when Dole was head of the RNC, uh, what did the House members expect to get from the organization? Well, of course, you always, uh, you turned initially to your congressional campaign committee as helping you. But you also realize that, uh, you know, the National Committee had a capacity for raising money. And boy, if the National Committee itself thought enough and was interested enough in that race to put some money in it, why then, uh, you know, you'd, you'd gone up an, another notch in the, uh, in the recognition. And uh, that was good for you <laughs> if it happened. <laughs> and what about uh, recruitment? Where, where did that... Uh well, and that's that's how so much better today, too, I'm thinking. And, and of course, the times make a difference. You know, like I said, my that year of Watergate, there you, uh, we didn't have candidates jumping all over themselves to say, come forward and say, hey, I want to run for Congress, and uh, um, uh, at least to take a seat. And then, of course, all you, you had, all your efforts practically were, were, were defensive. Hold on, you got you know, you're going to lose some, but geez, don't lose the whole uh, whole wall of wax here. But that it, uh, it was it was devastating, and we lost both in the House and Senate. So you were um, chair for a couple of years only uh, in the uh, congressional campaign, just one term, two two years, yes. And then the opportunity came to uh, to run for um, for uh, whip, and uh, when Les Aaron's bowed out, of course he was. Well, the whip for longer than I think any man in history will ever serve. Twenty-five years is the number two spot with Joe Martin and with uh, Charlie Halleck and with Jerry Ford. You know, he just—he uh, was so well. You know, another one, well liked, but he—he he really never gave any kind of indication he wanted to move up to the top spot. He was content to be the whip. <laughs> it's kind of odd. You don't—you won't find that today. I don't think. 
And you as WIP, uh, what were your main responsibilities? Well, of course, trying to, uh, uh, then I, did, I was WIP for three terms and um, under Johnny Rhodes, I was trying to put the, you know, put the pieces together whenever and, and, and participate, of course, in the, uh, whenever we had meetings on what, where are we going, what are we going to be doing, how, and of course, during all those years for me, I was a perpetual member of the minority. I had 38 years total in the House, all of them in the minority. I never chaired anything, a subcommittee or a committee or a, <laughs> or a sub-sub of anything. Only on the last day that I was in the Congress when Speaker Tom Foley said, well, Bob, <laughs> you, I think you've been in the minority long enough and you've been denied this gavel. I want you to bring the House to order. And there, <laughs> there was a pretty full house and they all laughed and it was a good, <laughs> I finally got to wheel the, the gavel for a couple minutes. Was that pretty bittersweet for you? Well, yeah, I, of course I, I um, had made the decision not to run again for, you know, I, we were 40 votes behind and I, I just couldn't conceive that we're going to pick up 40 seats and become majority. And while I'd like to have matched Les Aaron's 40 years, I said, you know, there's nothing magic in 40 over 38. Um, uh, and I was getting up uh, to 70 in the 70s, and I, I, I recognized in my own case that, uh, that I was not, uh, that I was, there were some things in which I was not as sharp as I once was, that I was slipping a little bit and uh, better go out on a high note rather than, uh, you know, than be something less than what you were initially and always perceived as you got reelected as leader as deserving of the honor and the credit and, uh, and that you weren't just hanging on. And uh, that's what helped me make my decision then to... Uh, to uh, bow out, but then of course, in, after we won 52 seats, and you, you, to say, did you, you have a second thought? Yeah, briefly. Although Newt and I would have still had a knock 'em sock 'em contest, I, I don't think Newt uh, would have let the opportunity go by without uh, challenging, and I could have lost. Although I think, had I lost, I'd gone back to my position as chairman of the then of. Uh, of the Appropriations Committee. And even though Newt over, uh, uh, got, uh, uh, jumped over several members as chairman, I don't think he could have afforded to do that with me because I, my, my basic conservative voting record is better than his. Uh, you know, I, I, that wouldn't have, uh, I would have stayed as, so I could have been chairman of the Committee on Appropriations. But, you know, then when you weigh it all and a nice opportunity I had to come here and with the collegial people, the same thing that I enjoyed up there. Why, shock! I had no regrets whatsoever. <laughs> We're getting near the end of this tape, so I'm going to stop oh, and put sure. a fresh tape in, and then we'll pick it up. Good. Great, this is really good. Very interesting. All right, we were just talking about uh, the relationship between you 
leadership on the House side and Senator Dole on the, on the Senate side. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about that relationship. Well, uh, uh, Bob and I were, our philosophy of life, I think, and politics is pretty, we, we were per, pretty in sync with one another. You know, I, I can't recall any time when on critical issues, uh, even my minor ones, you know, in which we were at, at odds with one another that it made a difference because we were leaders in our respective houses. Generally, we were in perfect uh, sync with one another. And uh, and I think the fact that Bob once served in the House always made us more comfortable in the sense that we knew he had an appreciation for what, if there was a different kind of um, um, nuance going on in the Senate versus the House. He could quickly understand what it was for those of us in the House to deal with what we were dealing with because he was once there. So that was always helpful. And uh, uh, on the big issues, we were always working together and and uh, in our conferences down at the White House. So I, uh, uh, we, we were both uh, given the opportunity to speak up, uh, and uh, if that was required, and uh, or to express the views of our membership, and uh, and we did so as best we could always, and uh, uh, it was a it was a good relationship that I had with Bob, and no question about it. I I guess sometimes you read about leaders at odds with one another, not in sync, and I just can't uh, I just can't. Have, can't think of a situation like that where we had we were at odds. Never. No, I really can't. You're not just being politic here, huh? No, I just uh, I, I, and I'd have to be. Re- oh, maybe there's maybe we did vote differently on uh, on some minor issues. You know, if I'd go back in the record, I can't remember what I while well, I voted on so many of these things. You know, but uh, it would have been very minor. It wouldn't have been controlling. That would be for sure, you know, or in our leadership role that, that it made that difference, you know. Um, how often did you meet with, with Senator? Well, uh, of course, uh, we were, in those days, we were having much more, it seems to me, regular meetings with the president than currently part of my, uh, I, as a matter of fact, speaking with Denny Hastert, I, uh, there's no question but that Denny did not have the relationship with G- George W. that I had with Reagan, for example, or with George the uh, First. It, it just wasn't there. And uh, I, oh, boy, the times that I took groups up to the White House uh, for, uh, for a key issue with uh, President Reagan, I never thought he got near the pre- the, the uh, credit for helping the legislative process. Uh, and I don't recall, you know, uh, Denny and George W. operating that way. And uh, he was very, uh, whether it was Jim Baker organizing it or Duberstein or, or uh, Mike Deaver, uh, uh, Reagan was always very helpful in that respect. And, of course, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd never take more than 10 or 12 in a group in the cabinet room there, you know, and then they and it, and it usually mixed, uh, Republicans and Democrats, and and uh, if, particularly on an issue, I have a little crib card, and the, 
the ones that are for you, Mr. President, are over here on the right, the ones who are against you on the left, and the, the swing votes are in the middle, you know, and always a, what the state was, because you would, couldn't expect the president to always remember that. But, uh, but those were very, um, uh, very important occasions to help sway the vote. Uh, I don't know exactly how uh, Bob operated, you know, with the senators. They, there weren't as many, and of course, uh, they had a bit different kind of relationship there in, in, uh, than I did with a house where you have to try and make the most of uh, a limited period of time with far more members, you know, involved. And, uh, but, uh, so were these meetings uh, attended by the Senate and the House? or were, were oh, you, Well, uh, generally speaking, there were joint leadership meetings, yeah, and uh, so that we can keep them informed. Uh, oh, there might be uh, some occasion when it was just, uh, he wanted just the House members there or, or the Senate was already done with the issue or vice versa, you know. But uh, generally speaking, initially... Why you were both taken into the confidence of the president, and uh, and that was a that was a good way to do it. You know, whether you were in the majority or the minority, but each side recognizing what the differences were going to be, because you had the power to do it, or you were playing second fiddle to a <laughs> to the majority in your house. And of course, in my case, I was always representing the minority. And uh, but. Uh, uh, it sure taught me, I think, to be a heck of a better legislator but by the fact that uh, uh, then subsequent I'd have to tell some of our subsequent uh, uh, leaders, you know, uh, listen, you, you, may, you may find that you'll be in the minority again someday. You'd appreciate a little bit more respect than what I see you're giving the minority, you know. Uh, and uh, overall, I think it... Uh, it helps you to have that relationship where you have a... And Bob was good at that. You know, he... Uh, of course, the Senate's a different body than the House is on many occasions. And and there is a, a more genteel mannerism, generally speaking, in the Senate than there is in the House. And, uh, and respect for one another uh, is deeper than it runs in the House where members are quick to... Uh, <laughs> quick to respond with words possibly that they wish they had not uh, had not uh, said. Of course, in some cases, they're taken down and and withdrawn from the record too. <laughs> so, at these presidential or these uh, leadership meetings, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, a Democrat, would be there too. Oh, sure. Yes. So this is very bipartisan. Oh, yes, Tip and. And, uh, of course, then there were t- times when, but not many. Most of the times when they'd have a leadership, you know, I think the president would like to, of course, in our, in our case, with uh, when we were in the minority, he'd just have to have the majority there, too. Otherwise, you're just rubbing people the wrong way. And and uh, and I think sometimes, Tip, you know, it'd be just a little bit ticked off that Reagan was as good as he was in convincing members on his side to split away. <laughs> you know, because they were the two Irish, but you just get that sense of feeling, you know, Chip would say, Doug, got it, you tend to your and I'll tend to mine. <laughs> because obviously he lost some votes and because of the, the president's popularity and his and his deafness in, in, uh, in uh, helping Win the issue for Republicans, even though being in the minority. 
But that was fun. It was, that, that was exhilarating to put it together. I imagine you have some interesting recollections of O'Neill and Reagan interacting with each other, mm-hmm. and probably some with Dole and Reagan, too. Oh, sure. Share some. Right. By all means. And uh, um, they, um, of course, on, on uh, what was it, St. Patrick's Day, of course, they'd all, everybody'd get to, you know, the, everybody'd get together, and of course, Reagan loved those storytelling times, and of course, he, Bob fit into that. Uh, into that mold, he could he could match story for story just about, <laughs> which is uh, I, I I guess the scriptures say thou shalt not envy, but I, I was always enviable of uh, Bob's capacity and capability for telling, and and the presidents too for telling stories, or anybody who had that gift for recollection of a, of the punchline, you know, <laughs> to make the story really uh, what it was, what it should be. That's a gift. It's, uh, you you just don't read about that in books. You, you, you got to have that innate ability to do it, and Bob did. It, it's my sense uh, that Reagan was a storyteller. Yes. And a lot of Bob Dole's humor came from the situation. It was spontaneous. Am yes. I right? Right. Right. And that's an exceptional talent. Absolutely. Quick of wit. Absolutely. Great talent. Of course, occasionally it had a rapier. Oh, well, you know, you got to take the, can't be perfect all the time. <laughs> um, what about the same kind of meetings with uh, George the, uh, the 41st? Uh, well, it, let's see, is that the first one? Or the yeah, second? George Herbert Walker. Oh, yeah, well. Uh, yeah, it, it was a continu- for me it was a continuation because it was the four years following Reagan, you know, so I had 12 years. And uh, that was, uh, uh, there were a couple issues, however, on which uh, uh, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush was a little bit more moderate than, than Reagan. Would have been, you know, not all that much, but uh, there were a couple occasions and... Uh, and frankly, I uh, uh, I only I think crossed uh, President Bush once. Uh, it was on a cable television thing that I I just I was at odds with what his particular view was at that at that time, and uh, I've never regretted that incidentally since then, seeing what's happened. But. Uh, <clears throat> My impression would be that the uh, meeting with President Bush would have been a little bit more businesslike, maybe, or not. Uh, oh, I don't know. That was there wasn't that much difference between the two when it came to that. And what about uh, Dole meeting with Bush, since they had been rivals on so many occasions? Was that a harmonious relationship? In these leadership meetings, uh, I didn't sense it. Right, I didn't sense that at all. Bob, he had a capacity, you know, in his role as to uh, speak up for what he was obliged to do so as the leader in the Senate. But uh, it was always decorous and and. Uh, I didn't detect any, you know, uh, payback thing or 
or uh, anything of that nature, quite frankly. That's always, was, I think that's one of Bob's uh, strong, strong points again. He was not one to publicly air the dirty laundry or whatever the occasion had at the time. How would you assess uh, Bob Dole as leader, particularly since you'd also had observation of, of Dirksen and, uh -huh. and Hugh Scott and uh, right. Howard Baker, all the ones yeah. that came before? Well, of course, everybody's, you're victims of your own individual body chemistry, I guess, <laughs> you know, and they're all different individuals. There's this, so, uh, but um, Bob's, uh, he, he, he could match them with the best, and no question about it. I think he, uh, uh, for the times that he was in the position, uh, as attested to the fact that he was so well-received to become a presidential candidate. So uh, had he been otherwise, why, they wouldn't have thought in terms of Bob being suited to, uh, to fill a wrong role as the standard bearer of the party. What adjectives would come to mind when I mention Everett Dirksen? Oh, Everett Dirksen? Well, a mellow, fluent, you know, uh, <laughs> voice. He always had that deep voice. And, and, uh, and uh, oh, his, his vocabulary was just uh, terrific. And he had that gift to reach back into the scriptures if need be for, to quote Isaiah or one thing or another to buttress his point and he had a he also had a good sense of history and uh, and then of course his eloquence was just unsurpassed and uh, I don't know that it you artists hate sometimes whether it's a compliment or not when you say oh that was that was a beautiful speech well what did he say you know and then someone say well I can't read it but it, it was a beautiful, it was beautifully said and spoken, you know. But generally speaking, his advice to me, I remember a few times or so, Bob, don't clutter up your speech, you know, three, three principal points. And, um, you know, that's enough. Otherwise, you, uh, you know, you, you can't bring the audience along or they lose the train of, of the point you're really, key point you're trying to make. He was very gifted at uh, at presenting his case and uh, and a touch of humor if he thought it was necessary and uh, but uh, and he and and uh, Lyndon Johnson of course while oh they've got I tell you in the Dirksen Leadership Library there's a couple exchanges between uh, Everett and uh, or even in writing of letters on an issue back and forth that the eloquence that he used to make the point or to, uh, it was, it was uh, great to, you know, that was a great experience for me. It was wonderful and I was privileged to be invited over to the senators because I was his congressman, over to his office, you know, in the back in there in the little back room where they'd, where they'd have a little touch, you know, after working hours and, uh, and of course, Everett lived. His, we, we were a big distillery town at one time. We had the largest in the world, and many of them. And, and Bourbon was, of course, uh, that old uh, distillery. Hiram Walkers, you know, they used to uh, make distill a lot of uh, a lot of corn, you know, for bourbon purposes. And now it's been converted to ethanol. 
But uh, Everett always, Bob, I'll have about three fingers, you know. <laughs> and that meant, you know, in a glass with some mice. And and, uh, and if it was only two, why, obviously it wasn't as strong. <laughs> Um, so he took you under his wing a little bit when you were Oh, arrived? I think so. Yeah, he, uh, I wasn't averse to asking him questions because uh, he was the master at it, you know. I said, Senator, gosh, I got a problem here or there. Uh, how would you handle that? He was, uh, he was just a wonderful individual. What about Hugh Scott? What are your recollections? Of- oh, and Hugh, uh, he, was, uh, he was a different personality. He, uh, he would uh, he would he would take so many more notes uh, in the leadership meetings with the president. It seemed to me than than others did, uh, and uh, just like for example, uh, on uh, in the House side, John Bradamus wouldn't in, wouldn't be involved in much of the conversation, but he was writing all the time. And I guess I think he's probably written a couple books. He became then president of New York University, but it's. Uh, I always felt like, uh, geez, I didn't want to spend my time thinking about what I'm writing, or I better be just thinking and hopefully to be able to, uh, you know, uh, retain it uh, what I was what I was listening to because don't miss a word. <laughs> right. um, and then uh, I, I guess Howard Baker uh, succeeded Hugh Scott. And what was his leadership? Like? Oh, of course, Howard was a good friend of mine, and. I, his wife and my wife were sorority sisters, and being Everett Dirksen's son-in-law, why, we were very, uh, very good friends and uh, got along so well. I remember, of course, one time when the, when the Senate was considering the library for Hubert Humphrey, and and uh, and Howard called me and said, Bob, I got a resolution over here for five million dollars for a library for Hubert Humphrey. Uh, what's your reaction uh, about our having, you know? matched with a Republican. Uh, and I said, well, my first thought is Everett Dirksen. You know, he had already passed away by that time. Of course, he was his son-in-law. It may be a little sticky wicket for you, Howard, but but I think we we ought to do something for the for the senator. Um, but uh, and, and I somehow got on the five million bucks, and I said, well, of course, uh, as uh, Everett Dirksen, whatever he'd do uh, would be at half the cost of Hubert Humphrey. We could be satisfied maybe with two and a half million, like chumps. Of course, today the the, the Dirksen Center now we have an uh, we have a an endowment of about nine million dollars, and it's well funded, and we do programs for for uh, school teachers, you know, um, limited in the summertime on congressional leadership and and the Congress to try and edge, and we're going to do more of that uh, as uh, the resources continue to mount and there's a there's an interest in it the uh, website is very impressive mm-hmm. spent some time there my, right my oh yeah. um, and then um, when you were describing Dirksen I began to think those might be some of the same words you use for Robert Byrd how would you describe Robert Byrd well, it was a di- oh, completely different relationship, obviously, because he was a Democrat. He was once in the House, and I, I must say that I never, th- I never really was impressed with him as as a member of the House. But as he uh, kept serving in the Senate, and uh, I I, uh, I got to respect the fellow for the prodigious, 
uh, reading. He was a ver uh, became a voracious reader, I guess, and uh, and uh, histo history too. And of course, always pulling out the Constitution, you know, as a as a reminder that uh, he really grew in the Senate. Uh, of course, now that the other thing uh, is his telltale, you know, he's it's a little sad in some respects because. Uh, He's not the Bob Bird he once used to be, but I was on the Appropriations Committee, and the two of us got along very well together. Uh, and I remember uh, uh, while we both had to have to rely on, on staff, sometimes I'd get pretty perturbed uh, that I says, listen, uh, we in the House, uh, we'd like to negotiate with the senator, you know, rather than staff and staff. You know, it's, uh, we are supposed to be semi somewhat equal, you know, and, uh, but, um, and, uh, of course, then, geez, the state of West Virginia is about ready to, to sink, you know, with all the projects of Bob Bird's, uh, you know, um, um, what do we call them now, earmarks today, you know. Right. Um, when you came to the House, you probably came as a, quote-unquote, Eisenhower Republican. Uh, yeah, well, frankly, a t maybe a Taft Republican, because I, uh, you know, Everett Dirksen was supporting Bob Taft uh, uh, back in, uh, at that convention. Boy, I was, that was the first convention I attended out there in Chicago, and old Senator Milliken was, uh, got up, I can still see him standing on a chair, and, and then so crestfallen when, when Governor Stassen uh, they they had passed the first time around. Mike didn't have the votes yet. And he wanted to be the one to put Ike over the top at the 52 convention, you know. And, uh, uh, and of course, that was the convention where Everett Dirksen, you know, pointed down to Thomas Dewey and, you know, Governor, you've taken us down the road to defeat, you know. <laughs> oh, it was It's a great thing on film, you know, but that's what happened back in those convention days when... They didn't have it all wrapped up like they do today with these primaries and stuff. But it was really interesting to go to a convention and smoke-filled rooms, notwithstanding, there was some action, <laughs> and it was uh, and it was uh, meaningful. You know, today it's uh, not nearly that. Uh, you know, it's kind of going through the going through the motions. It was riveting television. Oh, I, at, right. At 52, I was uh, <laughs> yeah. becoming politically aware at the time. And right. I was just on the edge of my chair watching both conventions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as a Taft Republican, uh, then... But I have a, a letter, one of the first letters in my, in my Dirksen collection of letters is one that I wrote to Ike when I was an AA, and he was president of Columbia University. And which I, uh, my right-wing conservatives, you know, came out and said, uh, dear, and I addressed him as general, as my former commanding officer, and told him my uh, 39th Infantry experience, you know, and always uh, respected you. And, uh, and now that uh, they're talking about you running for president uh, and being boosted by what we then called the New England or the... Uh, uh, New England Republicans, you know, uh, uh, that I would, uh, the gist of it was that I would hope you would not forget your Midwest heritage in all these uh, 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 goings on, you know, and uh, uh, 
Oh, I, I got a very interesting letter back, of course, which is in the Dirksen Library there. He says, well, of course, none of these machinations really mean any, anything significant. You know, I'm president of the university. Anyway, he was given the impression that he's happy where he is, and this is all conjecture and uh, far beyond. Uh, we, we, weren't, he wasn't at that point yet, you know. But he, he, I, said it, I said it a lot better in my letter than I've expressed it to you here, and he's done it beautifully in his response to mine. But uh, that was the whole idea that he was, that um, oh, um, the Cabots and the Lodges, you know, he was in that. And, and then Dewey, even though he's a tough prosecutor, you know, uh, in Republicans, it was Midwest versus New England in those days, you know, and uh, and uh, it was just a fact of life. But it was a little naive on my part because I was just a, you know, I wasn't even a, I was an AA at that time, and and like a young Republican, oh, hot to trot, but not all all that dry behind the ears. <laughs> Did Eisenhower disappoint you? Oh no, absolutely not, and. Uh, uh, I uh, my uh, first big moment with Ike was when he came to Peoria to give his farm speech at the Bradley Fieldhouse, uh, and uh, I was asked to uh, sing uh, the Star Spangled Banner on that particular occasion. And uh, and uh, then, of course, later when I was actually elected, it was boosting my candidacy. But all everybody, for that matter, wasn't for me only. And uh, but we actually lost two seats that uh, when Ike ran for re-election, you know, in '56, uh, hmm. and uh, so I was fortunate to win. And but it was a, basically a Republican district, no question about that. And where did you stand politically in '64? Oh, I was a Goldwater guy. Geez, I I went in 38 states for Barry Goldwater. Nearly lost my house seat in the pro process running against a hand truck driver at Caterpillar. Because uh, I, I felt, you know, I was just felt so strongly about it, uh, and uh, but it was good experience. <laughs> I learned a lot in that. <laughs> Had you and Goldwater been colleagues in the house? Or? No, 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 no. And frankly, we're all that close, really. You know, uh, like I was with Reagan and Bush and Dole and so many more. You know, we. Uh, but it was just that. That, uh, gosh, I can still see us go going into San Francisco and seeing this big orange on blue Scranton was uh, was one of the opponents, you know, in that convention. And, uh, of course, there again, you know, was uh, uh, convention meant something. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, and then what about Nixon? How does he fit in in terms of your... Well, I, would, I always was very close to Nixon, I guess, uh, because I, uh, well, number one, he was on the House on American Activities Committee that my uh, predecessor got on in. He was in the FBI before he was elected to Congress, and one of the reasons was the communist conspiracy at that time was a real thing, and the judge at one time was an FBI agent with uh, those folks out at the University of California at Berkeley under his surveillance, and and he was so ticked off that some of the stuff they'd send back here to McGranary, I think it was, was attorney general at the time, and nothing ever happened. 
And of course, then when Dirksen decided he was moving up, uh, that's what moved him to run for Congress was, by gore, I'm going down there to do something about what I've been learning about at the grassroots level and make some people aware of it and get on that House Committee on Un-American Activities. According to that, it was very controversial. And uh, as a matter of fact, he he only ran the four terms, my success, my predecessor, but he had uh, opposition in the primary every time because it was such a controversial thing. You know, the Hollywood 10 and oh, they even, as a matter of fact, they even one of the, the counsel one time when the judge and I were on our way to an Illinois football game heard on the news that they'd the counsel that had subpoenaed Harry Truman. And uh, gee, but at Christmas, I remember receiving the the formal letter of declination that uh, Murphy brought up to the to uh, the con to uh, <laughs> the judge, you know. <laughs> and we eventually took it out to uh, present it to Harry uh, Tr President Truman after he was long since out of you know for his library, so he'd have that original letter of that he wrote uh, about declining to s testify before the Congress. <laughs> <laughs> but like I say, those are controversial days. So did your republicanism then go through a lot of changes with uh, the times? Or Oh, I don't know. I was always basically quite conservative, but I was uh, always supported every civil rights uh, bill. And, uh, and of course, one of the, uh, where I broke even as leader, I was only 33 on our side who voted uh, uh, for the uh, uh, assault weapons ban. I just, as a former infantryman, I said there's absolutely no sense in having civilians around the country having assault weapons. They're for one purpose only, and I know what it's for. Uh, I've been through that routine, and uh, so uh, forgive me, boys, for not supporting the NRA on that one, but that's out of my, that's unreasonable for me. So I just voted against it. There were only 33 on our Republican side at that time who voted that way, but that's the way I felt. And I felt I could back it up with my experience, again, calling upon what we did during the war. When Reagan came into office, of course, uh, the tax cuts were, in 81 were a major mm -hmm. factor. And then in 82, uh, Congress sort of stepped back with, the, uh, with TEFRA, yeah. the, the other... Where did you stand on that, and did you work closely with Dole in, in, in really going up against the president and the whole supply side and all of that? Well, we, uh, gosh, I, uh, I supported, uh, supported the president as best I could, you know, and uh, we, uh, uh, I just, uh, I knew there were those differences, but I, I, I I stuck pretty close to what the president wanted to have done and let it go at that. Because some some people thought that Dole was really going against Reagan. Well, and I, yeah, I couldn't quite picture it that way. I, I just thought Bob Dole knows the Senate and he knows what can be done. I remember, of course, on one thing where, where, uh, where uh, Jack Kemp and I were opposed to Cheney and Lott in the House and just passing the bill in the House even though it was a lousy bill. Let's get it over to the Senate where they can clean it up. You know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not, we're not saying we're for um, uh, uh, Chairman Rostenkowski's bill here, but 
the only way I, we see our way out of this thing is to pass it in the House, get it over to the Senate, and clean it up in conference. And, and, of course, that's the position Jack and I took at that time, explained ourselves very well. But, but, but um, Trent Lott and, uh, and Dick Cheney, were, they said, well, we, we just can't, it's so bad we can't stomach it. And I said, well, but I've got to be looking at, at the overall procedural process here that makes something tick in the end. So that's when you got to swallow temporarily to get a, a good thing, a good taste afterwards. <laughs> Was that a common practice that you'd uh, send something over to the Senate? Oh, that, uh, uh, then... it depends on the situation sometimes, you know, and of course some fellows who, whose vote hangs on every vote or uh, who think their political life hangs on every vote they cast are very... You know, they they get be, be remain Simon pure, so to speak. And but when you're the leader and uh, you're looking on how do you move the process, why well, uh, you got more free uh, latitude and leeway to to uh, maybe vote a, for something rather ridiculous or bad to keep the keep the process alive. If that's the only way you can get it done. I've had occasion to interact with some people in the biotech field, and they said that the uh, Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, which uh, supported, it was the Biotech Industry Incentives Act, Mm. uh, was very important in terms of uh, freeing up uh, federal agencies in conducting uh, biotech and medical research and whatnot. You're not recalling that bill specifically. I, no. Uh-huh. Okay. Because no. I know you've had an interest in health care right, and whatnot. Right, and, right. and a lot of people in the, uh, in the uh, medical and biotech area think that was a real watershed, yeah. uh, watershed bill. Sure enough. Um, so we were talking about Eisen- Eisenhower and Taft, Nixon, all these sort of Republican <laughs> viewpoints. Then... Uh, uh, Newt Gingrich comes huh. to town, and uh, you, I read somewhere, it said that there's a real gap between your style and way of looking at things and this newer oh, generation. Oh, no question about that. And right. you mentioned in, the, in, in terms of style, in terms of values, and even in terms of thought processes. Mm-hmm. Explain yourself. Well, uh, uh, Newt's whole idea was that the opposition were our enemies, you know, and I, I always said they're knew there are political adversaries, not our enemies. And, uh, and I recall the days of, uh, of Joe Martin and uh, Sam Rayburn. I said, you know, when they uh, switched back and forth, depending upon who was in the majority, they always had a great respect for one another, you know. And uh, don't lose your head when you're arguing against you know, your opponents over there. Keep it, on the, keep it on the substance of the issue and not the personality. And... Uh, and um, his whole methodology it was always uh, uh, much more, you know, hard line uh, uh, than than mine was. I, uh, my, of course, part of that was the fact that I was in the minority and had I, I, I had nothing to gain by alienating Democrats on the other side of the aisle who might want to I might want to call on one day to support those 192 Republicans and win a couple things. And we did. And, uh, of course, and that was 10 votes less than what they got today in, in the Republican side. 
But you, uh, to do that, you've got to uh, always keep control of yourself and uh, and uh, have it a you know a, a credible discourse that uh, you don't have to apologize for in the end. And of course, Newt just had a he always prided himself in being a backbencher, lobbing up grenades to the leadership in front, you know. And I expect you know you expect that. I always had a half a dozen or so that I, uh, not that bad. Well, there was a group that was there, the bomb throwers, and then there were the other group that just were philosophically more liberal to the degree that they couldn't, they couldn't buy our, our program intact uh, philosophically. Now, that was a different, so those were a different group. You had to deal differently with those. John Boehner will make the point that, for example, in the bank scandal or something that he and some of us were in the back, you know, lobbing up, the, uh, making it difficult uh, for the leadership at that time. And uh, of course, I told him, I said, I, uh, and I had, I was, I didn't have any checks uh, involved at all in that thing, you know. I, uh, but uh, then when I realized what was going on, obviously I had to accept the fact that that's. Uh, it's too bad that that happened, but uh, we'll have to clean it up and correct it, and, uh, and we did. I was surprised that Gingrich had come to the House in as early as 1979. Yeah, after the third try. Yeah. And did he immediately have an impact, or? Well, not really immediately, but he, he wasn't afraid to speak up, you know. He wasn't one of those that was going to wait until he got to be a senior member before he'd speak. And then, of course, he liked the idea of uh, when, we, when there was electronic coverage of the House and, and uh, became a thing, and, of course, using the special order time to really sound off on things to the degree that it got so bad, you know, when Tip had to put a stop to the business of, uh, of members uh, using the occasion to act as though they're talking to Democrats and, and and asking him to respond when there was nobody on the floor of the house, you know, to respond. And uh, I, I, shoot, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't argue with Tip on that score. That was just outrageous. But it was being, it was being done, you know. So what was, what was the uh, rule that was? Uh, well, then of course by that time, then uh, it was a question of, uh, uh, well, they couldn't uh, move the cameras around, but they had to, you know, that kind of procedure would. Was, uh, but even today, the way it's shot, you don't you don't get any sense of the the room. Right. Well, that's uh, and of course it, that was always a point too. We were afraid of people, you know, hogging the spotlight. You know, you always run a uh, initially. You wonder, geez, how much show business is there going to be here, and uh, how much uh, will it. Will uh, everybody be respectful of the House of Representatives as an institution and make it a debating forum rather than one of showmanship? I want to end with this sort of a, a question that keeps coming to my mind, and that is that during the last fifth of the 20th century, essentially, or in your case, really last half of the 20th century yeah, almost, right. Uh, the sort of ongoing battle was over uh, the role of government in American life. Mm -hmm. how, how much 
government? Is there going to be bureaucracies? Is the government going to solve problems or not? And then tied right in with that is is the matter of the expense of running the government and sure. its programs. Do you see that as just being an ongoing uh, uh, feature of American life, or is someone going to win out in that battle? Or oh, I don't know. You know, uh, I'm reminded that when I would tell people. <clears throat> The difference between when I first came to Congress and when I left. When I first came there, the, the constituency said, Bob, we want you to go down to Washington, cut the cost of government, get it off our back, and lower my taxes. Uh, they didn't ask me, well, I want you to go down there and look out for this benefit or that benefit or give me this or give me that. It was just none of that. It was all con- keep government in check. Uh, we understand we have everybody, we have to have a government, somebody's got to serve, we hope we elect good people to to uh, perform for us, uh, but uh, we have a constitution which is a, also a very, uh, very viable uh, document that ought to be adhered to uh, very strictly, and uh, so uh, that's kind of the way I came to the Congress, that limited, you know, Sure, government's got some role and responsibility here and there, but boy, keep it under control. Keep it under uh, under restraint. Don't let it get out of hand. Or you know, if you don't want to pay taxes or don't want to, or you think government's costing too much, there's only one way to stop it, and that's refrain from um, succumbing to the temptation to spend. And for this or that pro- goody program, one thing or another. And of course, since that time, there've been those things that have brought government more and more into our life and the whole health care system, you know, now we're just trying to uh, get the last people involved, uh, you know, that aren't covered or and um, guarantee the, the fact that our farmers, uh, those few, relatively few farmers or agricultural people out there are still able to feed the entire mass of the country as it grows. Um, uh, be mindful of uh, of their plight when there's uh, an act of God and uh, or drought or one thing or another, and uh, so <clears throat> um, it's just cha- it's just uh, you got so many more th- things people are asking for today than than the, in the old days when uh, there wasn't that penchant for looking to Washington for an answer. And uh, sometimes you really have to, uh, you have to come back in those committee hearings and ask people, well, what's, what's this local community putting up for this? I mean, what, what are you, what's your contribution as an organization to, to making this thing go? Is it all got to be general taxpayer paid money? Are there some volunteers out there, some philanthropists or, who feel so strongly about it that no matter what, we're going to fund this thing because we think it's real worthwhile. But to turn first to government, well, <laughs> of course, you get into the question then of health, of research with basic research. And, and I've, I'm now on the other side of the, the table where I, I offered amendments to even cut NIH when I was in the, in the uh, Congress uh, uh, because I thought, frankly, we were maybe giving them too much money and it wasn't being spent all that wisely. And, of course, when I was first on that committee on HEW, $200 million as a way of comparison for the National Institute of Health. Today it is $27 billion. 
and I was responsible as chairman of the Committee on Medical Research in no small measure for doubling that research money in five years after I left the Congress by making over 300, um, 330, 40 visits to Capitol Hill to, to uh, uh, lobby members to uh, uh, put more money into research, basic research medically. It's, uh, boy, uh, uh, that's that's the only way we're going to, you know, cut down this overall long cost is finding uh, finding uh, ways of preventing these disastrous things from happening, and it all begins with research. And so I found, uh, so uh, I think the whole attitude of the country has changed on so many things. No question about it. Of course, one thing I like. I, Remember when ethanol first started, you know, and I remember talking to Dwayne Andreas, who, of course, was R.G. Daniels Midland, about, well, I guess, yes, I can support subsidizing the you know, manufacture of uh, or the production of uh, ethanol uh, because uh, it has some prospects of being a, a good substitute, you know, eventually. But uh, I think eventually, you know, you've got to pull your weight along with the oil industry. I mean, uh, we can't subsidize one and uh, not the other. So, uh, and of course, here we are. We're still <laughs> at that ju- juncture. I forget what it is, but it's significant. That's why there's so many plants being built in the country producing ethanol. And now we, and then, then we're getting the the backlash from the farming community and whatnot. And said, "My God, you're increasing the cost of my cattle feed and chicken feed and one thing or another." A dollar a bushel or more. <laughs> it's amazing. To say nothing of tortillas in Mexico. Right, right. right. Yeah. Any last words about your former colleague, uh, Bob Doyle? Well, no, but I'm, I'm happy to participate in anything that uh, would would uh, uh, bring attention to Bob Dole's service in the Congress. He was uh, he was just one wonderful colleague and friend and an and, uh, uh, active participant in the process at those levels, uh, you know, practically you know, legislative thoroughly and then even a shot at the presidency. Uh, so uh, I, uh, and then being a fellow uh, combat infantryman with me during World War II, we, uh, uh, we both uh, knew we had an obligation to serve, and we're called to do it, and we were. We both will be eternally, eternally grateful for the good Lord looking at, uh, upon us enough to bring us back, and to be able to do what we've been able to do subsequently. So, uh, we're coming on on that day again when uh, we just have to be reminded of those rows and rows and rows of white crosses of those who never made it back, and uh, but who gave it their all. And uh, so you just can't help but feel very fortunate that uh, we we made, did make it back and are, were able to contribute in some other measure to uh, this great government of ours. And uh, wonderful uh, to uh, hopefully pass on a legacy that would encourage young people to to realize, boy, you've got all kinds of distractions out there and everybody pulling every which way, but boy, there's no freedom like our the freedom we enjoy. And uh, hopefully you'll 
preserve it for generations to come. Good. Good note to end on. Thank you. <coughs>